Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. Welcome. My name is Barrett. I'm our Next Steps pastor at Revo. Excited to have you all with us as we close out our Christmas season. If you weren't able to be with us last week, we had some pretty awesome Christmas Eve Eve services. Uh, Pastor Nathan brought a great message. If you haven't heard it, I highly encourage you check it out. You can hear it on the podcast. And there's more to come. Next week, we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series, setting the tone for the coming year. Pastor Nathan will be back with us. But I'm excited for this morning. I'm excited for this season because as we move through Christmas and we look towards New Year's, a lot of people are focused on, man, goal things that we want to accomplish, things that we think are really important. And I was reminded recently about uh, things that are really important. As I was on a missions trip to Cuba, went down with a crew from Revo, one of the activities that we did was working with youth. So one of the Cuban house churches had a youth group, and we were meeting with them. And as sort of a get-to-know-you icebreaker type activity, we played a game called Two Truths and a Lie two truths and a lie. I don't know if you've heard of it, but in the game, everybody shares three things about themselves. Two of them are true, and one is a lie. And the other folks in the group have to guess which of these things is the lie. So you want to share things that people don't really know about you, maybe an experience that you've had, something in your past, maybe it's like a skill, something you can do, or uh, something you like or don't like. So people are sharing. It's uh, both the, the youth themselves and their leaders. And as they start to share, I realized, this was a surprise to me, that people are starting to share things that are actually kind of dark things in their past, some experiences that they're not really proud of, things that maybe they did before they started following Jesus, before they got connected with this church and with this youth group, and uh, they weren't sharing those things. It was really obvious. They weren't sharing them to try to brag about them or to celebrate any of this stuff that had been part of their lives, but they were actually sharing those things to show the other folks in the group how far God had taken them from those times, uh, how, how much their lives had changed since they'd had those experiences. So to kick it off, one girl was sharing, she was a young girl, and uh, one of the true stories that she told about herself ended up being that, that she had previously abused drugs. And no one in the youth group knew that. They were like, wow, like you, you know, like we know, we know the Christian version. We, we know the church version of you. You used to use drugs that were kind of uh, taken off guard. Another guy shared that uh, previously he had actually been in prison during a dark period in his time. He had spent some time in jail, but now was uh, one of the, I think one of the, the co-leaders of this youth group. God had really done a lot in his life. And then someone shared a story that just blew my mind. So one of the people we were doing this ministry activity with is a Cuban pastor, actually, a guy that we partner with a lot down there, and I know him. He's a very godly man, so he's sharing his two truths and a lie, and one of the things that he says, he says, I actually was previously arrested. I got arrested by police. So I'm in my mind thinking, well, that's obviously the lie. There's no way that that's true because I know this guy, and there's no way that that's part of his story. But it turns out it was, and so as he tells the backstory, this is what I hear. You see, this guy was actually the son of a pastor. His parents were Christians in Cuba during a period of time in which the communist government very harshly persecuted 
people of any religion, including Christians. And so since his dad was, you know, sharing with people about hope in Jesus, he had been arrested a number of times. They had been uh, just had insults hurled at them. People would throw like rotten fruit and stuff at their house, exit their house, just to try to uh, demoralize them, to make them give up their faith. But his parents stayed true to Jesus and in doing so suffered. But when this guy watched his parents suffering for their faith, he thought, I don't want any part in in that. That's a hard life. And so he actually ran from God as a youth. And when he was in this season of running, he had an experience where he came across someone, uh, another man that he thought was mistreating a woman. And in his anger and his uh, frustration, he actually just flies off the handle on this other guy and attacks this dude, starts effectively a street fight, and in the course of the fight, the other guy pulls a knife and stabs this dude, who's now a pastor, in the back. Like actually stabs him in the back with a knife. But the pastor's so mad, he's so full of rage that he just keeps fighting this guy until the police come and arrest him. So he gets taken to the hospital and he's receiving some serious medical treatment for this really, um, this really intense injury that he's gotten. It's in the course of this hospitalization that he actually gives his life to Jesus. He stops fighting, he, he surrenders, and God saves this man. And then he takes him from that place and he actually makes him a pastor, just like his dad, something he swore he would never do. And not only that, now he's the head of a church planning network. So there are hundreds of people in all of these churches around Cuba who have been impacted by this man's ministry. And God took him from being like a street fighter to now fighting for something that actually matters something that actually gives people healing and hope instead of tearing them down. So it's a crazy story. So he's sharing this in the course of this game. And then lest there be any doubt that this was, in fact, a true story, as he's finishing the story, he turns around and he starts to lift up his shirt. I'm like, what is this guy doing? This is a weird youth group meeting. Like, why is this pastor taking his shirt off? But he starts to lift up his shirt and he shows this huge scar on his upper back from where he'd been stabbed with the knife, making sure these kids know, hey, this is true. I have a dark past, but God has redeemed it. He's taken me really far from there. It was a powerful experience as I'm hearing this pastor and these other Cubans share their stories, and I was reminded how important it is for us to share the stories of how Jesus has changed our lives. What a powerful tool for hope that is, and just sharing with other people what Jesus has done for us, no matter how dark it may be. And I want to make sure that we as a church lean into that, that we don't miss that opportunity to to share hope with others, that uh, we are well equipped to tell our own stories. So I want to look at a text in the Bible that's going to give us a framework, some pointers, maybe some common elements of these stories of life change through Jesus that may help us as we even think about telling our own stories. We'll be in Mark chapter 5. So if you have Bibles, you can turn there now. Mark chapter Five And to set the scene a little bit, uh, at this point, Jesus has come um, to a lot of popularity in Israel, in the land where God's people live. He has been uh, healing people. He's been preaching and teaching. He's been casting out demons. He's been performing miracles. People really like him. He's popular. And you would think that he would want to capitalize on that ministry momentum that he really want to seize the moment not lose a single day because he wants to influence people right he wants to start a movement but he does something surprising he tells his disciples hey I actually want to get in a boat 
leave the promised land, leave the land of Israel, and I want to cross over the Sea of Galilee, this big lake on the border of Israel, and I want to go into a country where people don't know God. I want to know, I want to go into a country where the Jews don't live, where people don't celebrate me, where I'm not known and loved, and the disciples are probably scratching their heads, and they're thinking this is kind of a weird way to go about ministry, but Jesus is up to something. He's got an agenda, and we're going to find out what that is as we start reading In Mark 5, we'll begin in verse 1. Read along with me. It says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So the first common element that we're going to see in stories of life change through Jesus is that Jesus comes to you. Jesus finds you. Jesus finds you and not the other way around. You, we see it in the story, right? So Jesus is with all of God's people where, where miracles are happening and where people are celebrating God, and he leaves that place. He crosses the lake and comes to this man, a man who still lives in darkness. The Bible tells us that he has an unclean spirit. That's a reference to a uh, satanic, demonic control over this man. You see, he's living in sin, and Satan is seizing control of him is really manipulating and oppressing him because of his spiritual darkness. So Jesus finds this man. He's really coming, we're going to find, on a rescue mission for this guy. But why is this important? Why is it important to note that Jesus finds you and not that you find God? For this reason, because that makes Jesus the center of the story. It makes Jesus the hero not you. And every story of life change through Jesus is going to center around him. So what's our condition when Jesus comes to rescue us? We'll find out as we keep reading. Check out verse 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What's this man's condition? What's our condition? In a word, despair. Self-destruction. This guy is full of pain and agony. He's crying out from a deep inner turmoil. And we see that there have been attempts to help him. It says that maybe his, his friends or his family had tried to subdue him. They saw that he was really hurting himself, and they didn't want him to continue down this road, so they sort of put him in a straitjacket, right? They're like binding his, his, uh, his wrists and his ankles with chains, just trying to help him keep from hurting himself and other people. But the power of the evil in him is so great that he keeps throwing off the chains. Nothing can subdue this man. He needs something a lot stronger than any man-made solution, something a lot stronger than self-help, something a lot stronger than a 12-step program. This man needs something a lot stronger than what any human being can offer him. And why is that? Because his sin and Satan acting upon it is destroying him. Sin always destroys. Satan is seeking to destroy the image of God in this man. The Bible tells us that people are created and we're created in the image of God, meaning that we have in us the potential to properly represent who God is to the rest of creation as we love God and love other people and as we work for people's good. But here, 
this sin and Satan acting upon it is tearing this man down. He's being destroyed on all sorts of different levels. We see that as he's got some a mental and emotional destruction. I mean, he's, he's miserable. He's crying out over and over, night and day. He's physically being destroyed as he's taking jagged rocks and cutting open his own skin, his body wasting away from this sin. There's relational destruction and breakdown as he no longer lives in the town or in the city with his family and friends, but he's isolated. He lives in a graveyard, a symbol of his spiritual death, physically alive, but spiritually dead. He's separated from God and he's separated from people. He is miserable. That's our condition before Jesus finds us, but God is incredibly good. So the story doesn't end there. Keep reading with me. Let's go to verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Here we see even more evidence of the immense power of the evil that is oppressing this man. These demons self-identify as Legion. A first century Jew hearing this story firsthand would have immediately recognized a legion as the largest unit of the Roman military comprised of about 6,000 soldiers. This is a great number of spiritual forces oppressing this man, but not only that, they would have recognized the word legion as associated with the Roman military in general, which in turn was associated with the Roman Empire, which was oppressing God's people, ruling over them with an iron fist, suppressing them economically, suppressing them politically. It represented all of the evil world order that was stamping out life and hope and peace for God's people. So this is an enormous spiritual oppression that this man is afflicted with. And I believe that it's in the Bible to tell us that there is no one that is too far gone. There's no past that is too dark. There's no evil that is too great that Jesus cannot overcome it because what no one else could do what no friend could subdue, what no shackle or chain could bind in, Jesus can overcome. Jesus comes on the scene, and what happens? This immense spiritual power now cowers before the far greater power of Jesus, God incarnate, come to earth to save when no one else can, when nothing else can. Jesus frees this man. That's the second common element of stories of life change through Jesus that we'll see here. He not only finds him, but he frees him. He's able to do what no one else can, and to see how he frees him, we'll keep reading the story. Check out verse 11. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. How does Jesus save this man? He saves him the way Jesus always saves, through a sacrifice. 
See, there's evil that is oppressing this man, and Jesus calls it out of him and sends it into another living being here, being a herd of pigs, and those pigs suffer and die so that this man might live. This is how God provides salvation. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, that evil must be punished, and it will either be punished on the wrongdoer, him or herself, or it will be punished on a substitute. And here the pigs provide a substitute. Well, why would Jesus do this? It seems like a grisly story. I believe that Jesus did it because he was foreshadowing, he was pointing to a greater sacrifice. The sacrifice that would save God's people from evil oppression for all time, even this very man, because Jesus knew what was coming in his own story. Jesus knew that he would ultimately provide the sacrifice in his own life, in his own body. And I can think about Jesus looking at this man, and he's fallen down before him, and he's laying there in a bloody heap from having cut himself with these stones. And, and I can just hear these pigs squealing and screaming as they're rushing down this bank and plunging into the sea one after another after another and I can see Jesus having a premonition of his own body laying there before him and instead of being covered in blood from cuts with jagged rocks it's covered in blood from cuts given by Roman whips Instead of being covered in bruises from having wrenched off shackles and chains and overcome people trying to subdue him, it's covered in bruises from beatings from Roman soldiers themselves representing part of a legion. This evil spiritual force oppressing God's people. Jesus seeing his own skull covered in blood from having a crown of thorns thrust upon it, his back covered in blood from being scraped along a splintered cross, his hands and his feet pierced by nails, his side by a spear, and as the final pig entered the sea, and what had been chaos and what had been fear is now silenced, and there is peace, and there is calm, and this man, after so many years of suffering, is finally free. I can imagine Jesus knowing with certainty that for this he had come to bear that evil on himself so that this man and so many others could be free because Jesus knows that that's not the end of his own story, but after his crucifixion, three days later, he will be raised from the dead in victory over this evil, over sin, over death, its self-silencing fear and shame and brokenness for all who would trust in him. So Jesus frees this man, and in doing so, he foreshadows how he will free all people it's through a sacrifice it's an amazing story it's actually hard to think how it could get any better but it does keep reading with me in verse 14 the herdsmen fled and told about it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened and they came to jesus and saw the demon possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Third common element of stories in life change through Jesus that we'll see here is that Jesus changes you. 
He finds you, he frees you, and he changes you. When you encounter this power, when you encounter God incarnate, it will transform your life. And the change here is so radical that people are freaked out. They saw this guy before, they, they knew how bad his situation was, and now he's dressed, and he's in his right mind, and who, uh, he who had been isolated and separated from other people is now sitting in community with Jesus and his disciples, and it is kind of terrifying. Actually, the Bible tells us that there are different ways we can respond to Jesus' power when we encounter it, and one is actually a good fear of God. It's a healthy one. It's when we recognize how much more powerful Jesus is than us and we submit ourselves to his power when we want to obey him because we know that any God that loves us so much that he would die for us is only going to work for our good and so we embrace his power but there are others who are unwilling to give up that control who sadly like these townspeople are more interested in business as usual maybe in their own wallets these pigs representing an enormous financial investment for these people and they think I don't care how much this sacrifice may save this man or how much it may help him. I'm only worried about my own bank account. I want to be in control. I don't want Jesus to save his way. I want salvation my own way. And so they want to be their own gods. And they say, Jesus, leave this region. They're driven away from him. But again, for those of us who have known his healing and his love, we, we want to embrace. We even want to celebrate Jesus' power, and to see what that looks like, we'll finish reading the story. We'll pick it up in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This guy has experienced Jesus' love and his forgiveness and his healing, and of course, he wants to stay with Jesus. He wants more of that. But not only that, think about being in this guy's shoes. For him to return home to go back to his friends and his family represents going back to the place where he's known as the demon-possessed man. A place that for him is associated with a lot of shame, with a really dark past, maybe a place where he's hurt a lot of other people, and it's a lot easier for him to leave, to not have to go back and confront that past, to not have to go back and seek forgiveness or reconciliation. But Jesus sends him back. What is Jesus up to? Why would Jesus risk this man even entering back into more suffering as he confronts his past? The text tells us the reason is so that he can tell his friends, his household about all that Jesus has done for him and how he has had mercy on him because ultimately Jesus isn't on a rescue mission just for this one Man, he didn't cross the lake just for this one guy. But Jesus wants everyone in this region 
to hear about the healing and the hope that only he can provide. Jesus knows that there are many broken and hurting people, and he is not so easily deterred on his mission that he would let this one small group of naysayers, these people who don't want him there at the shore, derail everything. Rather, Jesus has decided instead of going personally, I'm going to send this man as my witness, and I'm not sending him empty-handed, but as he tells other people about truth in me, I'm arming him with his own story. His life is exhibit A for the truth in Jesus. It tells us that this man not only proclaimed Jesus in his own household, but in the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a region of 10 cities that stretches from modern-day Syria all the way down into modern-day Jordan. It's a large region. There were a lot of people who lived there. And the text tells us that everyone who heard this guy's story marveled. Everyone. And I'm thinking, how is that true? I mean, he's talking to so many people. He's sharing this thing so broadly. Surely there must have been some skeptics. Surely someone must have looked at him and been like, I don't know, man. That is a really far-fetched story. I, I don't know if I can believe that. But I think about this guy, and I think about how much he must love Jesus, how thankful he must be for the healing that he's received, and how much he must want other people to have the opportunity to receive that same hope. And so he's telling his story, and he's saying, no, 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 Jesus healed me. You can have this freedom too. And they're looking at him, and they're kind of shaking their heads, and they're thinking, I don't know, man, I don't know. And he goes, no, 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 look, look. And he starts to pull up his sleeve, revealing dozens of scars from where he'd cut himself with the jagged rocks. Maybe like my Cuban pastor friend, he starts to lift up his shirt. He's like, look, look at the scars. It's true, maybe he shows him his wrist or his ankles from where he had wrenched apart the shackles and the chains. And he's saying, you have to believe this story. There's a reason that everyone marveled. Because maybe not everyone became a follower of Jesus, but everyone had to admit something powerful happened in this guy's life. Something powerful had changed him. He was laying it all out there for everyone to see because this is key. When Jesus healed this guy, when Jesus forgave this guy, he had no more shame. He had no more fear. He was a new person, a new creation in Christ, the Bible tells us. And all of that guilt and all of that shame was taken away. And Jesus didn't just do it for the good of the other people. He didn't just send this guy so that others could hear hope, but he sent this guy for his own good. Our joy is always most full, is always most complete when we share it with other people. Think about this. Think about this. You know it's true in your life. If you love some, I don't know, food, like maybe you go to a restaurant, you have a great meal. If you love certain type of music, maybe you like a particular sports team, what do you do with these things? You talk about it with other people. You share it because when they like it too, when they get fired up about it too, it makes your joy complete. It's the consummation of your satisfaction in the thing, and that is what Jesus instructs this man to do. Go be happy. And me, go be as happy as you can. So they get the hope, he gets the joy, and God gets the glory. 
That is a story of life change through Jesus, and it's a great story. But there's a danger with stories like this because they're so good, they're so crazy, that we're tempted to think, okay, I get it. But that was Bible times. Like that was then and this is now. That was when Jesus was on the earth and there were things like demons and, you know, miracles happened. But stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. It's like an alternate reality. But we wouldn't expect that to see, we, we, we wouldn't expect to see that in our lives. Well, that thinking is false. These things happen every day. And in fact, I don't even have to go to somewhere like Cuba or somewhere like Iraq or anywhere else that Revo does missions in order to prove it to you. I can prove it to you from right here in Winston-Salem. I can prove it to you from right here in this room because part of my job as Next Steps pastor is talking to people and hearing their stories. And I know that Jesus is transforming lives even today. I've met this garrison man. I met him time and time again. I hear his stories. They are our story. I see him every time I look in the mirror because his story is my story. Like my pastor friend in Cuba, I wasn't born saved. I wasn't born a pastor. I have a dark past. In my teen years and in my undergraduate years, I completely gave myself to sin. Satan had a field day with me, and so I was doing everything that I could to try to get the things that I thought would make me happy, whether that was uh, success or popularity or sex or partying, trying to get some of the right things, but always in the wrong way, and that sin took control of me. It took me further than I wanted to go. It kept me longer than I wanted to stay, and so things like maybe a little bit of underage drinking led to Regular, all-out drunkenness led to drinking and driving recklessly and selfishly putting myself and other people in harm. Something like teasing a kid on a school bus led to taking advantage of others, led to even hazing people seriously, mistreating them as I did anything I could to try to be popular and feel like I fit in. Maybe something like light drug use led to more frequent drug use, led to hard drugs that I swore I would never touch, things that had a grip on my life, leading even to overdose sexual sin, left me and others feeling hurt and ashamed, taken advantage of. And as my sin grew more and more powerful over me and my despair became darker and darker and my self-hatred grew, I even remember like this garrison man intentionally hurting myself, taking lit cigarettes, holding them to my arm, burning myself, once even cutting my forearm with a serrated knife. There is no reason that someone with my privilege and my opportunity should do anything like that other than this, that sin always destroys, always and whether it's internal or it's external, it leaves the scars to prove it. But my story doesn't end there either. Because when I was in my darkest period, when all my self-help had failed, when I was backed into a corner, Jesus showed up. He found me. 
He convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except by him. He broke the power of sin over my life. He's given me tremendous freedom, and it's been a messy process, and it's been a long process, but I am proud to say I praise God in proclaiming that today love for Jesus and not love for sin characterizes my life. I am a new person. And he has sent me out as well. Maybe it just started by inviting friends to church or sharing with friends and family little pieces of my story here and there, sharing even with coworkers or even a stranger on the street. He's allowed me to work with youth and help them find the joy that I missed for so long, especially during that tough period of life. And he sent me even to other countries and to other cultures, to people in places like the Decapolis, where they don't have access to Jesus like we do here in the southern United States. And they simply won't hear unless someone goes to tell them. And I know that like the garrison man, the depths of my former sin only serve to magnify the greatness of God's love and power in transforming me and saving me from it. These are stories of life change through Jesus. That's my story. That's the garrison man's story. That's my Cuban pastor friend's story. What about you? What's your story? What darkness in your past has Jesus entered into? How has he freed you from it? How has he changed you? How has he sent you out to tell others? One of our core values at Revo is to live bold. We believe that everyone who's a follower of Jesus is called to share hope, to share Jesus with other people, even through the lens of your own story. And hear this. This is a crazy story in the Bible. It's an extreme story, but there are no boring stories. There's no story that's not worth telling. If Jesus has saved you, that is a miracle. And people need to hear about it. And it may be that you'll never go to seminary. It may be that you won't be an expert in theology. But there's one thing that you are a greater expert on than anyone else in the world, and that is your testimony. No one can tell your story like you can. I used to work as a trial lawyer, and one of the most powerful forms of evidence that we could present was live in-court testimony. In fact, it was such powerful evidence that for certain types of cases, it was practically required. You had to put a witness on the stand. You couldn't just submit some written documentation, a signed statement. None of that worked. You needed a living, breathing human being sitting on the witness stand and telling the judge or the jury about what they had experienced personally. Why is that? Well, think about it. When you've got a witness there, telling about what they've experienced, you can look them in the eye. You can judge their credibility. You can ask them questions about their story. And you can determine whether or not what they're saying is really true. And that's the power of the true stories of life change that Jesus has given you. We're about to start a new year. So here's my challenge to us this morning. Let's make 2019 a year that's characterized by telling our story to other people, telling Jesus' story through our own, living bolder than ever before. And if you're here this morning and you don't yet have one of these stories, there's no better time 
than today, than this morning, to find the hope and the healing that you won't find anywhere else, that nothing else and no one else has the power to give you in Jesus. He's still in the business of changing lives. And if you have any doubts about that still, I guarantee you they're right here. There's a room full of witnesses. Ask them about it.